0: Uh, Ford, uh, good afternoon. You have the next question for Tom? Hello, Tom. Hello, Ford. Uh,
1: so, um, as you know, my English is not really the best, but I try to get to the point as good as I can. Um, do you meet outside this PMR, as you did meet or um, met Dennis Manerick during the experience with Bob Monroe, other people, for example, William Buhlmann? sometimes outside of this physical matter-reality do you still doing experiences like in the past um with other persons of this pmr outside this pmr or are you doing all your experiences always alone alone means leaving this pmr alone
2: um i did do similar experiences to the ones i did with dennis with others it was all back in around the same time frame. Um, matter of fact, the uh, executive director now of TMI is uh, Nancy Lee McMonagall. And uh, she was one of the, not the very earliest, but one of the early explorers as well. That was Bob Monroe's stepdaughter. And we did a similar thing, uh, you know, as Dennis and I did. Nancy Lee and I went out and had a kind of an interaction together that we came back, and sure enough, we both, you know, were aware of each other and of the event, and it was clear that we had done that together. Um, she and Dennis and I often uh, would work at the lab at the same time. So, um, yes, yeah, so I've done that with probably two or three four other people. Do I do it now? No. Now it's mostly I've got a goal or a point or something I'm trying to understand or other sorts of things, and it's mostly all solo. I don't uh, really engage with other people. And the kind of engagements I do back then, it was more experience to convince myself that it was real. That was the first big goal I had. Is this real or am I somehow making this up? And once I got over that, then the need to do those kinds of things kind of gets less. And there's no not that much point in uh, doing those same kind of evidential things anymore because you don't need any more evidence. You got all the evidence that you, that you need. Uh, so mostly it's going alone, doing the things that I need to do or interactions with when I interact with others. They are more of a subject of interaction rather than a you know a of someone that I'm going and doing it with. I'm going to maybe you know as I just talked with uh Sveta, you know somebody that i that i uh, may need to chat with or communicate with in some way or heal or other kinds of things I might be doing. So they're more of a subject rather than an, a, than somebody that is accompanying me. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, that's a, a simple um, answer. And the question was quite simple. Um, but um, as I heard from Oliver once, there were some recordings um, during the sessions with Dennis Menrick and Bob yes. Monroe. Mm -hmm. Is is there any chance to to listen to these recordings because um, I'm so absolutely interested about it?
2: Um, We have tried. There's been... That question's come up, you know, over the last six or seven years. You know, do these recordings still exist? And I was in touch with uh, Monroe Institute and others have. They've gone through their... uh, archives and those particular recordings don't seem to exist anymore now that was back in the first half of the 1970s they We're talking about 73 74 75 that's a long time ago and they were done on cheap cassette tapes which have probably about a 10-year lifespan as far as you know the, the quality of the tape after that the tapes kind of over another five or six years, get brittle and and uh, oxidize and get to the point where they're useless. So they have long run out of their life, their lifespan as far as the tapes go. But many of, of those things were transcribed. Many of the tapes we did, that's where you go back to the old Explorer series. You can still go to TMI and look up old Explorer series tapes. And some of that stuff comes from the 70s. Uh, what they did is they got the old tapes and re, you know, replayed them, re-recorded them on more current media and then re-recorded them again. So they probably now have them digital, which doesn't wear out you know, like the other analog things did. And, and that stuff then will last forever. But they didn't do that to everything. There was so much. Every time, you know, Dennis and I were out there three, four, sometimes five times a week and every time there were you know, multiple cassette tapes run. So you can see just Dennis and I would pile up over six or seven years, could pile up a whole box full of cassette tapes. And we weren't the only two people. There were other people going through. And then even the people that just came in off the street just to try it, they all had a cassette tape, uh, tests that were done. So everybody had a cassette tape. And he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cassette tapes. And they went through to try to pick out the ones that were more significant and and then save those. And these evidently didn't get saved. And I can see that, that they might not, because unless you were aware, you wouldn't necessarily know that you listened to my cassette tape. You wouldn't necessarily know that there was one that was just like it that Dennis was doing at the same time. You know, that wouldn't be marked on the necessarily marked on the tape. So they would have gotten a tape and, oh, yeah, this sounds like one of 500 other tapes. Eh, You know, we, we won't do that one. It's just a sample like ones we've already got. And they probably would have missed altogether the fact that that was one where Dennis and I were on that trip together. You know, when you're doing it, you don't think about the longevity of the, you know, of the material or even how significant it was. Dennis and I did really unusual things, had unusual experiences three or four times a week. Well, if you have unusual experiences three or four times a week, they're just not all that unusual anymore. It's like, yeah, another day at the lab. Yeah, we did this, we did that. We went out together and you know, that's just the way it is when you go to the lab. So they weren't thought of as, wow, this is a big deal. We need to, you know, make sure that these last and get moved forward. We didn't think like that. You know, it was, like people the last thing people ever do is document what they've done and most of the time people don't do that very well. It's a it was a real time thing and all the documentation was taking the cassette tapes and throwing them in a big box. You know, that was our documentation. But a decade later, when they were starting to dissolve and the tapes weren't very good anymore and people decided to go in, well it was different people wasn't Dennis or I, or Nancy Lee, you know, it was people who just had a box of tapes and they were going to go through and see what they should save, but they weren't really there at the time that they were made. These were new people that came in later that did that. So it just fell through the cracks. We've tried, they've tried to go back and it uh, just gone. That's gone. Best you can do is, uh, is you can talk to Dennis about it and you can talk to me and you could talk to Nancy Lee who uh, she and I did one I say that uh, was very similar and you can get those conversations, but I think that's about all that remains of it but it's not that it's not that hard to do evidently, although I should say that all of us had been probably three or four years, you know many times a week working in this area. So I guess we weren't just like the average person off the street, you know, that has an out of, out of body. We were kind of primed, if you will, to do these things and pay attention to details and practiced in the States that we got into. So it, it may in that way have been fairly unusual, but sorry, there just doesn't seem to be any of that documentation around anymore. That's the way it is when you have a bunch of scientists just having fun, you know, they're, they're not that clever about their documentation. And years later, it'd be really great to have those tapes, but it was not that big a deal. Actually, Dennis, it wasn't even that big a deal to him to have the experience. It was just more weird stuff that, you know, we did all the time. And it wasn't the big aha moment for him that it was for me. He had a big aha moment that came later was uh, completely different than that. It was just another one of those strange experiences that we have every couple of days. So that that was the, you know, now, if you just think about it, it sounds like some really extreme event that you'd want to keep track of. But then it was just other, you know, another day out of the lab. Thank you. Uh,
0: If anyone has a question for Dennis, uh, email me, Keith at XTEvents.com. And I will do my best to get it answered. We don't know what this is up to at the moment, but team talk to him from time to time. Uh, there are actually 24 tapes in existence in the Explorer series. You can find them at www.muninstitute.org forward slash explorer series. Or just do a Google search. Okay, on with yeah. the questions. The next one is from Mike O M Tom. Um, we all know Mike. Mike's a, a good supporter of the MBT team. We've met up with him a few times in New York. Good afternoon, Mike. Hope you and the family are well. Uh, he writes, Tom, a while ago while we searching the D Q E, which uh, I believe is the quantum experiments, uh, half silvered mirrors, etc. I came across an old experiment or the SAGNAC experiment, that is S-A-G-N-A-C. It has been in the back of my mind, and I wanted to ask about the C constant and its implications based on the following point. Relativity states that there is no ether and that light travels away from an object at the same speed to the object the object is moving or not. The Sagnac experiment is similar to the Michael Morley-type experiment, except it involves rotation. The concept is used with gyroscopes in planes for directional awareness, etc. The feature I find interesting here is that when structural movement is added, the light beam interferes. Sorry, I'm going to read that again. The key feature I find interesting here is that when structural movement is added, the light beam interference pattern changes as compared to Mm non-movement. But how can this be? Regardless of whether it's relative, relativistic velocity or not there should be no change in the interference pattern if following identical paths right oh, i'm sorry i made a mess of that one i'm saying yeah that That's was all... uh, hard work for me <laughs>
2: yeah now he's uh, misunderstanding that experiment uh there's nothing uh, that happens out of the ordinary in that experiment It's all well understood and it's all the standard physics the reason that he thinks that that it's really strange in his last question, right? You know, that doesn't happen, right? No, it does happen. It happens just like that. It's because the source is attached to the thing that's moving. So the source is moving. What happens is the source emits, emits a particle that hits a beam splitter. It goes both ways around a circuit. Then it comes back to the source. Okay. Well, because the thing's moving, the source is moving too. It's part of the, the whole apparatus includes the source. So if you emit a particle and it's going to come back to you, but you're moving in the direction of that particle, then when it comes back to you, it doesn't take as long because it doesn't have as far to go because the source itself has moved closer. Remember, it goes out, travels the circuit, comes back to the source. Well, if the source has moved closer to you while it was traveling the circuit, then it's going to get back there quicker. So that's what's going on. It's it's nothing uh, magical about that, and it doesn't have to do with the constancy of C. Um, it all works out in standard physics and uh, nothing too surprising there. You probably just, you know, unless you actually see a movie of it moving, it's a little hard to get that because when I just describe it to you, you don't have the sense that the source is necessarily hooked to it. And you don't have the idea of exactly how that motion is taking place. But if you can actually see it, it'd probably make more sense to you, but it's not a, it's not a strange – that's not weird physics at all. That's just normal physics.
0: Thank you, Tom, for answering that question. Okay, um, It's all going on sure. my end. Um, oh dear. Um, we had a couple of questions from MBT Forum user Andy. His first question I believe you answered earlier in a different form when it was asked by – or member two, so we're going to skip that one. The second question is Has Tom ever interacted with the original primordial LCS aware being that actually made the decision to fragment, or in other words, the ultimate?
2: No, um, that's gone, you know, that's history, so it's it would be hard to interact with that directly because that doesn't exist anymore, it's evolved past. A direct interaction Uh, most of those things including the larger consciousness system itself and the primordial consciousness and the higher self and all those things are really just metaphors okay we have to talk in terms of metaphors when we talk about the larger consciousness system because all we get is data we never get the source of the data There's nothing that identifies the source of the data as a particular source. Just we get the information. We get the data. And uh, no flags as to the source come with it. So all of those things are metaphorical. It's a model built up to explain what we can measure and experience. So we don't want to take those things too seriously, other than the fact that they're they're a functional part of the model and we figured that when I, the, the primordial consciousness was, was a, is a metaphor for whatever existed before the consciousness system evolved to what it is now. The conscious system is evolving. So you look at it now and it's one thing and you know, it wasn't always like that because it's been evolving for a long time. So you try to go back to the simplest state that conscious could start in. So it's a matter of, of regressing back where what's the simplest state with the fewest parts and the fewest assumptions that you can start with and then let it evolve up to what we have now when we do that in biology we start with a simple cell a biological cell and if we got one biological cell well it can split and have two and they can split and have four and now you can work everything else out starting with that point so that's like the the simplest starting points you can come up with. Well, my concept of the primordial consciousness was the simplest point I could come up with with something that then could evolve into the consciousness system that we see today. So they're all really metaphors for functions within a model, not to be taken too seriously other as metaphors, not real things. But even if it was a real thing, then it would be a real thing that time had passed that you wouldn't interact with directly because it's history, not current. So no, the answer to that question is no, I've never interacted with something that I thought was primordial consciousness. I've only thought about it as a necessary component in an evolving consciousness system.
0: Tom thank you for that okay next one is from open skeptic using intent in the right way um I have a question Tom about using intent you have said that if you misuse focused intent the system may give you a learning lesson my question is what's the line drawn for example some people use intent to find a parking lot. Um, Thank you, Dennis. We've (laughs) remember remember Dennis and his his parking lot theory. Uh, That works. Um, It's not influencing others' free will. Another example would be um, trying to find a basket inside a grocery store so it's ready waiting for you when you go inside. The reason I ask is because I want to be able to use focused intent as a tool, but I do not want anything that is against the system um, to be used. So how can a person know? Can you formulate a sentence that expresses only if the system allows me to do this? so that you are safe in taking a chance. What about people who never heard about this rule before? What about children who use focused intent? Do they get the same lessons or negative feedback as well?
2: It's not what you do. It's why you do it. That's important. So it's not that you use your intent to find a parking space or a basket card or uh, make a taxi show up, you know, just when you need to have one. That's not... The point so that's that's what you're doing. The point is is why you're doing it. If you're doing it in a way that is positive towards your own growth, like you're just playing with focused intent to see if it actually works, well, that's not a bad reason to be doing it. You're trying to experience this consciousness system and see if your experience can can uh, validate the things that you've read. That sounds like a good a good uh, reason to be doing those things. So that's okay. Now, if you do the same thing, because, you know, um, you and somebody else where you work are having a little contest of who can, you know, get the, the better parking space. So you have an intent that he, that's other person will never find a space. They'll have to park a half a mile away and walk in the rain And you are going to find one right up front. And if you're doing that kind of a thing, then that's just ego games. And then it's not going to work very well, or you will end up with a lesson for that. So it's not the looking for a parking space. It's the what's driving it. You know, where is that intent coming from? What's the source? What's the purpose of it? And if the purpose is good and learning, having an experience so that you can get this experience for yourself that's a good, you know. That's a good thing to do. Um, then fine. So just look at your motive. What's your motive for doing? If your motive is a is a decent motive, then there's no problem. If your motive isn't, then there is a problem. So that's that's the point. It's not the thing to do. And children who use their intent, sure, they use their intent. A lot of people use their intent to. To kind of get what they want, whether it's a shopping cart or, you know, their parents to, you know, buy a particular toy for them or whatever else. As long as it's just done without malice, without trying to manipulate, without trying to take advantage of people and manipulate them to do what you want, then it's fine. So it's it's it's. it's why you're doing it is what can be the problem not what you do so if it's all about you and getting what you want and i'm going to intend you know that uh you know more money shows up in my bank account and i'm going to intend this and and intend things that are all about you and your ego and your and your status and and uh you know what the boss thinks of you and you're going to intend to get that boss to give you a promotion even though you don't necessarily work very hard because you're going to whisper in his ear. And if you have those kinds of intents where well, they're all self-serving ego intents and those will tend to backfire. If you overdo that, the system is tolerant. You know, it's not going to give you a terrible lesson because you are kind of flirting on the edge of what's ego and what's not. But if you are a, repeat offender and you keep trying to take advantage of people or manipulate them then eventually that will probably blow up in your face and that will be your lesson
0: a valuable lesson no doubt for the lesson (laughs)
2: okay it's better I believe I have another
0: question for Tom you say it's it's one and a strange one this should be interesting
3: can you hear me yes I have another strange question when we met at the Boston conference, remember? Uh, somebody mm-hmm. took a picture of us and uh, we hugged for a second. I had a very strange experience. I don't know if you had it, uh, the same experience or you didn't even notice it. But what I saw like, we're hugging and then we're uh, letting go. And all of a sudden, your face. Um, still on on its place, but it it doubles and it moves into this direction. It moves, and I look in into it, and I see big head with one eye, very very sad eye. Like to myself, it's like primordial primordial consciousness, which you were just talking about.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Why did I have this experience? Did you you didn't notice anything? Did you?
2: Now um, I may have noticed that you were having an experience, but it was your experience, not mine. So, um, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't actively taking part of it, but uh, I probably noticed that you were having some sort of an experience that maybe had to do with me. But that's okay. I wouldn't interfere with it or remark about it or anything. It would just be yours to to uh, experience. And people have that. I get. I get similar sorts of things often from people uh, who, while they're sitting there listening to me talk about my big toe, they'll see lights around me. They'll see all kinds of interesting phenomena. So it's not all that unusual. Exactly why that happens, I don't know. Probably because people are wondering about me and what I'm like and what my life is like and that kind of thing and that. That little intent kind of triggers the system to give them some information, that mm-hmm. uh, that gives them an idea, and then they get that, and so it's a personal thing that yeah. you get, and it has has to do with your thoughts and where your thoughts and your intent runs.
3: Totally didn't expect it. I never had an experience before or after like this with anybody else.
2: Yeah, just weird old Uncle Tom. You know, that's just one of the one of the. One of the benefits. One of the benefits of coming to one of my lectures, right? The, you know, strange yeah, well, things sometimes happen.
0: I was going to say that, Tom. You know, people say, "Oh, I'm going to wait for the video," and you, you really don't know what's going to happen live, and 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 there is a real intense experience that. We experience it every time we're with you um, at a workshop or event, and I know the people there have great stories to tell about the energy and and the things that they see and they feel that you simply can't get by watching a, a video yeah. afterwards. That's, yeah. that's 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 good to mention. Well, well, one of
2: the one of the neat things in those in those experiences is that you have a room full of people. You know, you have thirty to sixty people who are all very special people, or they wouldn't be there. You know, it's not just everybody who's really interested in the nature of reality and, you know, and and, uh, spiritual things. And so you get this selection of people that are all now in a small room, and they're all very exceptional people. And that creates an energy of its own that is unique to each each group, and that I think most of the people there are sensitive enough they can feel that. It's very palatable energy that's just in the room at the time. So it's not... It's not uh, me that's that's uh, doing all of that. It's the people who are in the room. All of us together kind of create a, a psychic environment that is unique.
0: Um, the next one is I'm going to try and ask it. I'm going to make a mess of this one as well. Marks uh, in mp3 forum user. <laughs> um, if you read that one, there's there's lots of letters. There's lots of words, and it. it's, it's going to. Well, we'll see what happens. Here we go. In what aspect is our consciousness in MPMR different from the consciousness we have within our PMR or virtual reality experience? We are familiar with our consciousness, our inner voice or our thoughts, and our subconsciousness, driving a car, body functions, etc. And we can experience both directly or indirectly within PMR. Is this the same consciousness that you talk about when you refer to NPMR consciousness within the larger consciousness system? How can we differentiate between consciousness and experience? Wow. Okay, I got there.
2: (laughs) Okay. It's very confusing because we have the word consciousness. We use the word consciousness to describe a whole lot of things. You know, there's the larger consciousness system, and that's consciousness when you're talking about the big picture. When you talk about consciousness, it's the larger consciousness system we're talking about. But then we have our own individual consciousness, which is our IUOC, our individual unit of consciousness. But, oh, we're just a part of that. Then there's this other consciousness that's our free will awareness unit, which is just the consciousness that the avatar, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's located just local to the avatar. So we have all these different viewpoints of consciousness, and depending on what the subject is and what we're talking about, we could say the word consciousness could mean any any of those things. I suspect maybe we need a, a you know maybe a, some different words or consciousness A, B, and C or something. But you do have to just pick that up from the context of what it is we're we're talking about, whether it's the big picture or this or the intermediate picture or this or the little picture consciousness um so that's probably why there's the confusion In some of my talks i talk about big c consciousness and little c consciousness and that the big c is the larger conscious system and little c is like the free will awareness unit and often instead of going if i'm talking to a group that many people aren't familiar with with uh, my big toe i just talk about iuoc as being our consciousness rather than even mention a free will awareness unit because i don't want to complicate the discussion Any. People are having enough time struggling with the concepts without me starting to throw out different terms and acronyms and the rest of it. So then I'm only talking about the IUOC as our consciousness. Though it does get confusing, I guess I should apologize for that, but uh, just look at the context and do the best you can, I guess is all I can say. Now, did I miss some of that question, Keith? Or did that...
0: No, I think I think you pretty much got that, Tom. I think we managed to ask it, and I think you managed to answer it as clearly as we probably could under the circumstances. Yeah,
2: yeah. and okay. you can get it. You know, you can. All of those are all part of the same consciousness. There is only one consciousness. That's the larger consciousness system. So in that way, there is just one consciousness. But then these are other aspects of it. You can call it other aspects, or you can call it, you know, uh, subsets, or you can call it you know, we, we bubble up out of the larger consciousness system. So an aspect is sort of like that. The words I use here, um, again, don't take them too seriously as, as words that are facts, take them as words that are metaphors trying to explain how one larger consciousness system is differentiated in the whole bunch of free will awareness units, but it's really all the same thing, but they're really different. You see, that's, a hard thing to do with language just because we're talking conceptually, not talking literally.
0: Tom, just for clarity though, what about the the big C, little c consciousness? Because people have seen that and come across that. So can you just yeah. quickly tell them why?
2: The little, the little c consciousness is our personal consciousness, which is be like a free will awareness unit consciousness. It's the consciousness that is playing the avatar, that piece of consciousness, that's the little C. And the big C consciousness is the larger consciousness system. So in there, we're leaving the middleman of the IUOC, we're leaving that individuated unit of consciousness out of that picture. Because again, you get too many things in a picture, it just complicates it. And I did that because the people who, like LeBay or Liebet, uh who did the experiments, came to the conclusion that uh, consciousness didn't exist that we were in a deterministic reality because of things that little C did because of the way little C worked in the avatar. Well, that has to do with the little C being part of an avatar. That's an electromechanical device. That's very slow. And he was noticing that uh, the body would start to move in tiny little potentials before the awareness was actually aware of something happening. So he said, well, see, it's deterministic. The body's moving without the consciousness even being aware. And that's just wrong. That's just the way the little C consciousness has to interact with an an avatar. He didn't have a concept that there was another larger consciousness system of which the little C was just a piece behind. He didn't see that bigger part of the system. He was only seeing a piece of it, and he was mistaking some of the way the conscious and and the avatar have to work together in the virtual reality. You know, they're passing the data back and forth between the computer and the, and the person. And there's delays there. And there's some artifacts of that communication system. Sometimes the avatar has to get started early. Otherwise it'll be, you know, late to the, to the result. So that's, that was different. So that's where the little C big C came to differentiate between us and our connectedness to the avatar as opposed to the system of which we are a part.
0: Thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're going to shoot through a few questions we got from uh, CH or channel 79 on the forum. Um, first one, Tom, very modern. It's hard not to notice the explosive popularity of memes in PMR. Are those just our invention or is NPR, MPMR also full of memes or is it just our turn to
2: learn? It's um npmr is not full of memes now i say that from the bigger picture viewpoint Uh, if you go to another physical type reality inside npmr which is non-physical to us these other reality systems you'll find something similar to what we have here memes that we have these are ideas and concepts that just get popular where you know there's a there's a picture or a a saying or something and people pass it around. And pretty soon it's, I see things going around that I have seen 15 years ago, you know, still being passed around all this time. They've never settled or dropped out or people got bored with them or deleted. They still make the rounds. Um, New people come in find them interesting and keep passing them on. So that's the, That's kind of the definition of what a meme is, and it has to do with the fact that we've got this new technology we never had before, and we've got new social media that we never had before, and people are just interacting. Something uh, tickles their fancy or they think is particularly meaningful or funny or whatever, they pass it around. uh, you know, People who pass it around, who pass it around, and uh, sometimes it gets changed and modified and gets passed around some more. So that's what a what a meme is. It's it's uh, something we cycle. Well, that's very common right now because of the internet and social media are all new, and uh, we tend to do that. I remember when email was first around, people had the hardest time not doing a respond to all, you know, reply to all, and you were constantly getting emails that really had nothing to do with you. You just happened to be on a list. And it took a long time before people stopped that, and they just began to pay more attention to who they were sending their email to. Before, it was just, oh, reply, and they weren't really aware that there was more than one reply button. So part of that will settle down. You know, 20 or 30 years from now, the Internet will be a totally different place than it is now. It will mature. It will grow up some, and there won't be quite so much pass it on to a hundred people kind of mentality going on right now it's new tool and everybody's playing with it. So no, and NPR tends to be more of a singular place. Individuals act as individuals more than people acting in groups. There are groups distributed through it, but just NPMR as a whole in the bigger picture sense, it's mostly about single players and their interactions. Not so much about group players, unless you get into, more buttoned down realities like ours.
0: Okay, hey, thank you Tom. The next one is there is a common joker archetype in NPMR scenarios. They appear to be like messing with things and they don't seem to get much resistance for it. What is their function within the system?
2: Well, that is mostly in the perception of the of the person here, of the of the human being. But if they have a function, it's to stir the pot, it's to create um, opportunities, it's to uh, knock you out of your rut, it's to give you challenges, it's to uh, make you think and think again. And sometimes it's just it might just be humor and out in the margins, sometimes you'll run into an entity that will just be giving other people a hard time just for the fun of it. You know, that happens, but that stuff's really rare and in the margins. Most of what he's talking about, the, the, the Joker uh call that the joker meme, maybe. It's it's uh mostly it's in the eye of the beholder. Things will happen. There'll be odd set of circumstances that uh will seem like it must be a setup or it must be somebody you know pulling strings someplace but odd circumstances can just happen where there are billions and billions and billions of interactions going on some of them are just bound to be very odd and very strange and uh, kind of fall in a sequence that makes you think that somebody must be toying with you so sometimes it's just that occasionally somebody is toying with you but like i say kind of down in the margins doesn't happen very often stirring the pot would be the function give people a you know a little nudge out of the rut out of the normal way of thinking of things and seeing if they you know respond um with just reflex or whether they can think and and kind of go with that flow or whether they get uh, unhappy or angry or demand that it not be that way or other sorts of things that are basically ego reactions to that or beliefs. You know, now it's the, the bad spirits, you know, are having fun with me. So that would be a beliefs sort of thing for the most part. Under the fat part of the curve, it's, it's those kinds of things.
0: Thank you. Uh, next, do you know if part of the LCS is exponential or linear or does it not have a constant growth pattern at all?
2: No, it doesn't have a constant growth pattern it uh you know exponential and linear are just two two different curves, very specific curves, and it's none of that, but even if we generalize those to steady and progressively quicker and not limit them just to those two equations, then uh it's not really like that either it's Its growth probably was a lot quicker. It's like things that mature. Think of you growing up when you mature. That's probably a good way to think of it. When you're two years old, change comes quickly. Between between being two and two and a half, you're almost a different person. Between two and three, you are a different person. Between three and five, you're a totally different person. You keep changing, and the changes are quick. Matter of fact, I noticed once when I was on a two-week business trip, and I came back, and uh, my son seemed to be completely different. He was saying words, doing things, walking better. It's like that two weeks, the difference was obvious. But from when I just lived with him every day for two weeks, I didn't see that much of a change. It was very gradual and you don't notice it. So that's, you know, it's, you grow up faster in the beginning because there's so much things to learn. So I suspect right at the time that the larger conscious system split into pieces and was interacting with free will, the change was probably dramatic and fast. And then you get, you know, it gets more uh, asymptotic. And then we invented regular time and and virtual realities that were more physical-like and all of these technologies and inventions came along. I expect that speeds things up for a while. And then that gets asymptotic because it gets to be, you know, business as usual. So it, I'd say it goes in spurts, depending on what's going on. But yes, it's always been in an upward. You know, it always goes up on the whole, even if there's pieces of it that go backward sometimes. In general, over over a longer piece of time, it's steady progress, and that's true here. Even in just this reality frame, if we look back 500 years or a thousand years to where it is today, it's a much kinder gentler place today even with all the nastiness that we have in the world it's still you know not uh, as rough as it used to be so it's a slow it's a slow grower it's tough growing up it's not quick no it's not
0: Um, since PMR's rate of time is slower than that of MPMR, Tom, should MPMR not be evolving and processing much more rapidly? Comparison then, how do we not become vastly outdated? Maybe some things evolve faster in MPMR, whilst other things, such as our being level quality, evolve faster here in this
2: environment. Sure. It's it's not just because they have a, a, a higher clock rate. It, it makes them evolve faster. That's that's not the case. Actually, slowing down into our our physical reality and working at our lower clock rate right, is a faster evolution. That's why it's there because it works better than the other one does. It's more efficient. So even though our, the time ticks slower, our choices and their ramifications and their consequences are more, are more uh, real, they're more in your face. Uh, there's, there's more of them, a lot more choices to make because of the rule sets we have. So this is the fast track where we are here in this PMR. Other PMRs are also fast tracks. This is where it's easier to learn. The lessons are not so cerebral, the lessons are not so intellectual, they're right in your face, you know they're, they're painful. Uh, the lessons are uh, inescapable, and that gives it a that makes it a tougher place to learn. But it also means you can learn more a lot quicker here. So this is sort of the fast track in evolution of toward becoming love. I know it's hard for people to they look around and they say we're on the fast track to becoming love. Doesn't look that way, but uh, we've come a long way. We got a long way to go. We're chugging along with it, and yes, this is a this is a good place to this is where this is the challenging place. It's not so challenging elsewhere. But that time thing is a is an interesting thing because that means there's lots of cycles of time for operations and computations between each of our delta ts. So just between our delta Ts, lots can happen. There's billions and billions of cycles that can be computed before we even get our next 10 to the minus 44 seconds. And between delta Ts, there is no time, right? Until you click the delta T over one more, there is no time. So we, our time jumps in little jumps. It's not continuous. And between those jumps, there's nothing. Time does not progress between jumps. But for the larger system, Time is still ticking away. So that gives them a lot of time to assess what's going on and whether they should make nudges or not make nudges or whatever else they want to do interacting with us, they've got time to do it in. They're not, they're not rushed. Real time to them is a lot quicker than real time to us.
0: And uh, Channel 79's final question, Tom, improving technology for the future. In the same way that newest PMR technology is better and more improved than the older PMR technology, are new RUOCs and PMRs better than older RUOCs and PMRs? Or can everything be on the fly so that older creations don't become inferior as time goes on? As someone with programming experience, I cannot imagine how that could be done especially in a system of this size and complexity so how do you optimize something for the unimaginable advancement of the future
2: well like we just said their time is in smaller ticks than our time so they have a lot of time to change things modify things if there's different processes that they want to use you know this is now the process of the virtual reality rendering engine if that engine can be made more efficient can probably all be done between our Delta T's. So it's, we're just at a standstill while all that's going on. And the only constraint is that there's no hiccups in our reality. You know, you don't want things to not be continuous and smooth in this reality. So as long as the changes don't create a discontinuity here, then no problem. They can change out whatever they want and it's not really on the fly they are uh, able to do it between times or do it slowly or progressively work it in. So it doesn't, you know, create a problem. They can do anything they want as long as it doesn't create some discontinuity in our reality or any way they want to. So as new technologies come up, I can see they'd be employed, but I wouldn't expect that happens very often. This system is old. It's very fast, much faster than what our ours works at. And, it's been able to optimize itself over millions of years, so it's got a lot of time to optimize if you're not optimized over a million years or so of use, you know well in our if our just our reality altogether, our whole physical reality is what four billion years or eight billion years or something like that, it's some number of billions of years well, that's a long time to be able to optimize your system, so I don't expect this late in the game that there's a lot of really big changes as far as our rule set goes you can't change the rule set much because the rule set creates our reality if you change it very much it's a different reality and you got a big discontinuity so that has to stay about the same as far as the technology of of uh serving you know the server that has to serve up our reality um that could change some but my guess is that we're we're long out of the development area into the mature area as far as that technology goes and there's no point in changing something that's working fine unless uh, you're really running out of bits and i see no no evidence anywhere that the system is straining for for bits or for throughput so i'd guess uh not much not much change in technology at this point now technology changes early on we're big like when the when the system was first evolving and it discovered regular time before it had irregular time, but it wasn't until it had regular time that it could flip states in a regular way that it actually could, could then sequence things. So regular time was uh, a big and uh, new technology, which changed everything. So that kind of, that sort of thing, even breaking apart into lots of uh, individuated units of consciousness with, with uh, free will. That was a new technology that changed everything. So early on, I'm sure there's some big technological changes. Doing patterns of patterns of patterns was probably big compared to just doing a pattern. Since now you could have patterns of patterns, patterns inside of patterns, inside of patterns. Uh, you, could, you could learn about fractals and fractal patterns. And I'm sure there were lots of new technologies that, that uh, made great leaps in this system. But most of that was long, long ago. It's not so much now. It's a pretty stable system at this point.
0: Well, Tom, you know we've always come to the end. I've got one more question sitting in front of me uh, from Guzegosh. In um, he's he's actually in, in Manchester in England. Um, it's a long one. And If you saw the question on definitions of fear, I don't know whether I should read out this whole thing today or whether we should look at it and maybe save it for another time because it's it's well, long.
2: That is one that I did look at I had a little bit of time before I signed on today and I did look at that particular question and I think we can deal with it without you reading it um, as far as he goes the question basically is for the people who haven't read it is that differentiating between fear and being aware of difficulties and it's a question that I I have talked to several times in that just because you're fearless doesn't mean you will jump off a cliff. You see, being fearless has to do with being not only aware, but being prepared. And he, he talks about all these things. And I guess the short answer for him is I agree with him. He, he breaks the fear out into several categories. And and then his last question is, is this right? You know, have I broken it out correctly? And the short answer to that is Yes. He's broken out correctly. The way he's thinking about it is right. And he's he's on the money. And people, though, get confused about it. They say, well, isn't some fear good? Isn't fear a good thing sometimes? You know, it keeps you out of the woods during the mating season. You know, when the grizzlies are out, uh, it keeps you away from the edge of the cliff. It, um, you know, makes you hold on tight on the roller coaster. You know, all those things are good things. Well, that's not fear that makes you do that. If you are... If you are aware of risk and then take intelligent measures to deal with that risk, that's different than fear. Okay. That's not fear. No, there is no good fear unless you can maybe come up with a really, really strange kind of scenario. But in general, there is no good fear. Fear is always a problem. If you're afraid, you're much more likely to get hurt in a tight situation. If you're fearful, And you see that grizzly bear, you'll run. And as soon as you do that, you've just triggered his prey chasing response, and now you're toast. It's the fear that gets you in trouble. It's the fear when you're, uh, you know, 50 feet under the water that makes you come up too fast, rather than taking the time to decompress on the way up. So fear tends to make you do stupid things, makes you do things that are not in your best interest, makes you do things that don't reduce your risk, but increase your risk. Being intelligent and aware of risks is a good thing. You need to be aware of risks and react intelligently to those risks, but that's not the same as fear. Fear will always make those risks riskier. You're not as smooth when you're very fearful you don't run very fast, your muscles are tight, everything is, is wided up. You can't think very well when you're panicked. You see, fear's the problem when it comes to to a, a risky situation. Being aware and fearless and prepared are really what you need to be. That's the optimum three that you need to that you need to be. Fear just gets in the way. So no, there is no good fear, and fear isn't a good a good thing and no, that did not help us evolve. What helped us evolve was to be aware of the risk and be smart enough to avoid it. That's what helped us evolve. It wasn't, it's not our fear. Okay, so that was really the question and the the answer. And he said all that. He just said it in three or four paragraphs and that, uh, but he is correct.
0: He'll be very pleased to hear that, Tom. Um And I'm very that I didn't have to ask the question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was a long one, yeah.
0: It it was. Um, I guess, and and with that then, we come to the end of uh, another Fireside Chat. Uh, Thank you, Tom, insightful and wonderful as always. Everyone watching, you know what it means to you and how important it is. So if you know of any new ways that we can raise awareness of Tom and his work and of the Cultural Connection Tour, we would certainly love to hear from you um to give tom a chance to prepare for the cultural connection tour and to give justin a chance to catch up this is going to be the last fireside chat that we do in 2017 so happy holidays or season's greetings to you wherever you may be in the world and i guess we will see you all in the new year and we'll see what that brings
2: thanks for joining us take care thanks keith